We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. Uh, does anything matter? Essay number two. Okay. Can moral judgments be true or false? Or is ethics at bottom a purely subjective matter for individuals to choose, or perhaps relative to the culture of the society in which one lives? We might have just found out the answer. Okay, so, so <clears throat> continuing this with uh, the discussion from last time, one of the conversations we had regarding atheism is that uh, the, the logical consequence of atheism is nihilism, right? That nothing really matters. That I can, I can, say, I can cure like whatever the world's most deadly disease is, but then I'm going to die and become fertilizer, so it doesn't matter. I can commit genocide, and then I'm going to die. It doesn't matter. Or I could just live a normal, commonplace life, and then I'm going to die, and it doesn't matter. Right? Because the end result of all of those is the same. And when I'm dead, uh, I'm not going to care about my legacy, because right? I'm not going to exist anymore. Right? Um, and so then that raises the question that, all right, uh, if, I'm, if I'm an atheist then I'm also saying that religion is completely invented. Yeah. Uh, and so all this notion about God, about the hereafter, about revelation, that's all just completely made up. So then, the really question becomes, does anything matter? And deeper than that, do I really need to behave in any particular way? Yeah. And so that's what we're exploring here. Okay. Among philosophers, the view that moral judgments state objective truths has been out of fashion since the 1930s, when logical positivists asserted that, because there seems to be no way of verifying the truth of moral judgments, they cannot be anything other than ex expressions of our feelings or attitudes. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when we say, you ought not to hit that child, all we are really doing is expressing our disapproval of your hitting the child, or encouraging you to stop hitting the child. There's no truth to the matter of whether or not it is wrong for you to hit a child. So what do you think about that point? I think that makes sense, because even in my ethics class we were talking about how across, like around the world different cultures have different moral uh -huh. standards and judgments. And that becomes one of the questions then, is there anything universal? Right? Yeah. That <clears throat> is, everything, is everything subjective, um, with nothing being objective, um, Except maybe just you know, you know, scientific uh, uh, measurements, um, or is there some objective truth? Is there some objective right or wrong? Although this view of ethics has often been challenged, many of the objections have come from religious thinkers who appeal to God's commands. Such arguments have limited appeal in the largely secular world of Western philosophy. Other defenses of objective truth and ethics made no appeal to religion, but could make little headway against the prevailing philosophical mood. Okay. So, so <clears throat> one point is that a lot of morality comes from religion, and in a secular environment that doesn't really uh, gain too much traction. Right. Last month, however, saw a major philosophical event, the publication of Derek Parfit's long-awaited book on what matters. Until now, Parfit, who is an emeritus fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, had written only one book, Reasons and Persons, which appeared in 1984 to great acclaim. 
Farfet's entirely secular arguments and the comprehensive way in which he tackles alternative positions have, for the first time in decades, put those who reject objectivism in ethics on the defensive. Okay. So, <coughs> he's, uh, as we're going to see, he's going to argue that there is an objective ethics. Um, even though the vast majority viewpoint is that everything is subjective. This is also very much the shift from the modern era to the postmodern era. In the modern era, uh, which, which goes for most of the last 200, 300 years, the sentiment was that there is an objective world as, uh, that is identifiable by science. And so there's objective morality. And in the postmodern era, which begins, especially after, like, around World War II, um, in response to modernity, the view is that, number one, science doesn't really give us the answers to everything. Because just as much as science gives us technology and new medicines, uh, it also gives us new bombs and methods of destruction. Right? Uh, so science gives us facts, it doesn't give us values. Okay? And, and so the sentiment in the postmodern era is that there isn't really anything objective. Right? All is subjective. So you have your truth, I have my truth. So here Parfit is arguing that no, there is definitely still uh, some degree of an objective truth. On what matters is a book of daunting length, two large volumes totaling more than 1,400 pages of densely argued text. But the core of the argument comes in the first 400 pages, which is not an insurmountable challenge for the intellectually curious, particularly given that Parfit, in the best tradition of English language philosophy, that always strives for lucidity, never using obscure words where simple ones will do. Each sentence is straightforward, the argument is clear, and Parfit often uses vivid examples to make his points. Thus, the book is an intellectual treat for anyone who wants to understand not so much what matters as, we as whether anything really can matter in an objective sense. Okay, keep going. Many people assume that rationality is always instrumental. Reason can tell us only how to get what we want, but our basic wants and desires are beyond the scope of reasoning. Not so, Parfit argues. Just as we can grasp the truth that 1 plus 1 equals 2, so we can see that I have a reason to avoid suffering agony at some future time, regardless of whether I now care about or have desires about, whether I will suffer, suffer agony at that time. Okay, so what is the point he's making? It took me, like, I had to read through it a couple times, or I had to go through it a couple times to understand. So that sentence you just read. Um, just as we can grasp. Just as we can grasp. So even if you don't feel like, like you don't have any like desire. I mean, I guess I'm using it some words wrong. But like, even if you don't want to, um, like you don't have any want or desire or will to avoid pain later, or suffering? Wait, am I just saying that the same? Mm, keep trying. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so... So in the future, you don't want to suffer. Even if you don't have that not want right okay. now. So yeah, the first part of that... Know. Yeah, so the first part of that is... Uh, he's saying nobody wants to suffer agony. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's the first part of what he's saying. Okay. Regardless of whether I now care about whether I will suffer agony. Um, so in simple English, the point he's making is that uh, 
everyone has a reason not to suffer agony. And so that becomes like his universal point that, that nobody wants to suffer agony. Nobody wants to suffer. And an exception to this would be someone like a sadist masochist who, who derives some sort of pleasure from, you know, self-inflicting pain. Uh, but he's saying that the default in terms of the human experience is that people do not want to suffer agony if they have the choice at some point in the future. So this is what he thinks is his argument. That's what it seems to be, yeah. What do you think? Is there truth in that? I mean, I think it's true, but I don't think it's very strong. Because okay. like you said, like there are people who want to. Okay. Okay. And so one of the challenges becomes... If something is objectively true, um, and you have, um, let's say, 0.001 percentage that are the exceptions, uh, does that then mean it's not true? So for science, if you have 0.000000001 um, contradicting it, it still might be considered objectively true. Okay. And, and so, for example, we don't really have an explanation, uh, explanation of gravity, uh, or whether you want to call it magnetic attraction, like why does it happen? We can measure it. We can measure how much gravity there is. What do you mean we don't have an explanation for it? What's gravity? Like why does it happen? <laughs> we just know that it's a thing. Yeah. But, like, we do understand gravity. We understand how it works. But why does it exist? Like, we understand how it works in tremendous detail. Because that's how, you know, we set up satellites in the sky. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's much of how science works. Like, science may not be able to tell you why something exists, but it can tell you how it works. Most of what science is focused on is how do things work. Right? But the point being that... Um, even then, when we speak of, like, if I let go of a pencil, um, we actually say the odds are that it's going to uh, fall down. Right? I've never seen a pencil not fall down. But if you were to drop your pencil a billion times, the odds are that at least 999 billion, 999, not, well, you know, all of it, but maybe one time, you can be sure it's going to fall down. Um, but those are a matter of odds. Why can't you say it's going to fall down 100% of the time? Because we don't know. I mean, I've never seen an exception to that. <laughs> but the, the deeper point we're making is that... Uh, no, but like, using yeah. physics, like, you can use a formula and you know that each time, like, it will fall. Yeah, when you get into later physics, then they start telling you that um, it's uh, uh, not as definite. Yeah, because we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what? Like, what do we like, know? Like, I mean, I don't know if there's ever been a case of the pencil not falling. But, and it could be that physics has changed since I've been taught physics, but that's literally what we were taught. We went through, we, we were taught all the formulas and everything. And then we moved further, and we're told, yeah, this is actually odds. <laughs> what? Yeah. And there's even other theories, um, related to like you know how things are actually falling but um, then if you take it further you get into quantum physics then everything is out the window 
even cause and effect is out the window. Okay. <laughs> In any case, my, my point being that uh, if there are some small amount of exceptions, does that mean it's not tr uh, no longer a truth? And, and so keep that as an asterisk in your mind, right? That would we still consider it to be a truth, even though we have 0.00001% of the people that this would not apply to. So, I'm sorry? Translation? Yeah. Is that if you have something, I don't know where that came from, it just popped into my head. I don't know where that, I don't know what that is. But if you have something, that is basically 99.99%, yeah. then you can just treat the ruling of it as if exactly. it's 100%. Yeah. Nice, mashallah. Yeah. And so this is the point. <clears throat> so would you say then that at least for the vast, vast majority of people, they want to avoid suffering? Yes. Yeah. And so that's, that's the core of his argument, that there are some things that are objective truths. Okay, continue. Mm -hmm. We can also have reasons, though not always conclusive reasons, to prevent others from suffering agony. Such self-evident normative truths would provide the basis for Parfit's defense of, objecti of objectivity and ethics. Yeah, you one major argument against objectivism in ethics is that people disagree deeply about right and wrong, and this disagreement extends to philosophers who cannot be accused of being ignorant or confused. Okay, so, so this is a point we've already made, that people across the world have, have deep disagreements about what's right and wrong. And these are not dumb people. These are smart people. Of course, his example of smart people are, are European philosophers, but we'll go with it for now. If great thinkers like Immanuel Kant and Jeremy Bentham disagree about what we ought to do, can there really be an objectively true answer to that question? Parfit's response to this line of argument leads him to make a claim that is perhaps even bolder than his defense of objectivism and ethics. He considers three leading theories <coughs> about what we ought to do, one deriving from Kant, one from the social contract tradition of Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, and the contemporary philosophers John Rawls and T. M. Scanlon, and one, and one from Bentham's utilitarianism, and argues that the Kantian and social contract theories must be revised in order to be defensible. Then he argues that these revised theories coincide with a particular form of consequentialism, which is a theory in the same broad family as utilitarianism. If Parfit is right, there is much less disagreement between apparently conflicting moral theories than we all thought. The defenders of each of these theories are, in Parfit's vivid phrase, climbing the same mountain on different sides. Okay, so you see what's being said? What? So there's different theories about morality and ethics, but their goal is essentially the same. Yeah. They're just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, not, they're not as different as they all think. So let's rephrase it. Uh, instead of, uh, I want to avoid agony, would it be useful, universal to say that people want to have pleasure? Yes. Okay, so that might be the same way. They might be saying the same thing, just using a different approach. And that is what he seems to be saying about all these different philosophers. That the details might be different, but in essence they are actually all saying the same thing. 
Now the question becomes, isn't that what we all say about religion, that they all more or less teach the same thing? Yeah. What do you think about that? Sorry, or finish, uh, you can finish what you're So, uh, so like, so he's saying all these different theories of morality more or less say the same thing, and that's what people say about religion, that all the different religions more or less say the same thing. What do you think about that point? Like all the religions, or are we talking about like the all the big ones, not just the Abrahamics, but like include Hinduism, Buddhism. Yeah. So I think that their main purposes, like, or like the main aspects of those religions aren't true. For instance, the same God that, or the same force, like the world force that Buddhists believe that is God, the main God, I don't know actually how Hinduism works, I don't know much about Hinduism, but I think the main entity that people believe, like, God could be defined in different ways, but the main, I don't know how to define God, but, or that force in the world, but I think that main feature is common throughout the major religions, okay. so I think there are definitely aspects that are the same, so like that's okay. the goal, that's the same, and they're climbing the mountain on different sides, uh -huh. different religions. Okay. So a difference that we would make between what he is saying, Parfit is saying, is Parfit actually goes through and argues how, that they're all, that they're all more or less the same thing. Of religions? No, the oh, philosophy, okay. the oh. morality, okay. moral philosophies. And uh, uh, the issue with, like, all the religions teaching the same thing, uh, I do think uh, if you strip away a lot of, of the religion and focus more on a belief in some higher power and some belief that there are things that I do that have an effect greater than the actual noticeable effect, like the fact that I pray... I mean, I believe that there is an effect to my prayer greater than just a physical stretching. Okay? Um, that, I think, is common among religions. Okay? So, belief in a higher power is some sort of ritual that has some efficacy beyond what I can see. Um, but then, beyond that, then I kind of feel like it's like it would be almost like saying every novel tells the same story. Right? So, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, uh, Hamlet... I mean, it's a play, but uh, every story, it would be like saying every story says the same thing. Which, if we strip it down to its most basic points, yeah, we could say, in every story you have someone who's trying to do something. Right? Um, and that way you can say all the stories of humanity say the same story. Okay. So there are other theories, like one by uh, a person named Joseph Campbell, who argues that all mythologies of all cultures have a hero, or all cultures have a mythology, and at the core of the mythology, there's a hero, and the hero seems to always go through the same steps, okay? which is fine, but then I think it removes everything else, okay? which is a big part of what makes that religion that religion. Okay? So if you remove Salah, if you remove Namaz from Islam, you remove something in integral. Right? Um, and we can say that, well, in Christianity, they have Sunday Mass, Hinduism, they have their temple where they go to. But we are saying that, yeah, maybe there's something similar in terms of a, a ritual prayer. But we're saying that Salah is its own thing. And, and 
I mean, the Prophet is saying that the difference between a believer and a non-believer, I'm paraphrasing, is, is Salah, right? See what I'm saying? Mm. That if you strip it down to certain specific elements, then, yeah, all the religions more or less are saying the same thing. But now, if you talk about the lived experience, uh, we can say, from according to Scripture, for example, Salah is most important. Yeah. But we see all these different reasons why people become Muslim. And so other things are more important to them. Right? And, and so uh, I often like to think of religion as, if you think of all types of different art forms, whether it's someone drawing on paper, someone painting, someone sculpturing, someone um, uh, making a movie, um, I think of religion as the biggest, most complex of all the different art forms. Yeah. And the key point being its complexity. And so that's just a, a point to think about, uh, to, to explore. Uh, nevertheless, he is actually going through the different philosophers and showing how they all actually really fit together. Okay, and let's continue. Readers who go to On What Matters, seeking an answer to the question posed by its title, might be disappointed. Prophet's real interest is in combating subjectivism and nihilism. Unless he can show that objectivism is true, he believes nothing matters. When Parfit does come to the question of what matters, his answer might seem surprisingly obvious. He tells us, for example, that what matters most now is that we rich people give up some of our luxuries, ceasing to overheat the Earth's atmosphere and taking care of this planet in other ways so that it continues to support intelligent life. Many of us had already reached that conclusion. What we gain from Parfit's work is the possibility of defending these and other moral claims as objective truths. Okay. So what's the real big point that Singer, the author of this book, is saying? Uh, whether or not Parfit is right or wrong, uh, the real point is he's showing it is possible to still argue that there are objective truths, which is a big point. There's another study, there's a, a famous study that I like often to refer to um, uh, from Harvard not too long ago where they did a study of giving in different cultures. And they argued, and it's been a while since I've even read the study, that they argued that um, giving seems to be appreciated in every single culture, and it seems to result in people being more happy. The giver being more happy. And so they're arguing that's an indication of an objective truth. That this is something that spans across all the different cultures. And that, you can say, is one of the big questions of our era. Is there anything reliable as objective? And this is exactly the struggle that Imam al-Ghazali went through in his time. He was looking for, uh, is there any truly objective knowledge that is as real and as clear as saying 3 plus 4 equals 7? He was struggling with that, too? Yeah, a thousand years ago. So what did he write about that? So his, his book, and we can also read that, is called Deliverance from Error. And, and he came to the conclusion that the way of the Sufis, the actual way of the Sufis going beyond this material world is where the answer is. So he's saying the academic disciplines, mm -hmm. Islamic law and such, um, will get you so far. Or, you know, the other academic disciplines like math and philosophy will get you so far. But they're all limited. But the way of the Sufis is actually something that goes way beyond all this. 
religion. Kinda, but like you know, it's almost like applied religion. Because, like, Singer said that that doesn't really... Like, for, for general people. Like, yeah, for religious mm-hmm. people, that would work. But for general people, like atheists. Mm-hmm. Atheists. So, I mean, yeah, so an atheist would be able to use it. Yeah. Uh, but Imam Ghazali is not... I yeah. mean, he's... Uh, yeah, he, I mean, so you can say he's gone through his doubt, but then he went through this path and he found something that is beyond, you know, mere hallucination or whatever it is. Yeah. Maybe we can explore that book, too, inshallah. All right, we'll stop here, and then we'll get into the next essay next time. All right, Subhanakallah, Allahumma bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka, natubu ilayk, wa akhir da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.